Hey, deserving listeners, I have a special guest with us to talk about evolutionary psychology and the critique and maybe some of the good parts of related fields. But before we do that, let me introduce the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Uh, please introduce yourself, special guest. Uh, so my name is Yuval Laor, and uh, I... Uh have a PhD in culture studies, uh, but I wrote my PhD about the evolution of the human capacity for fervor with my advisor, who's an evolutionary theorist, and she taught me uh, how to think about uh, uh, evolution from an evo-devo perspective, uh, not what uh, evolutionary psychology with big E and big P uh, uh, paradigm that uh, you have been referring to in previous podcasts. So I uh, hope to be able to shed light on the criticisms that uh, people in the Evo Diva world uh, have on the evolutionary psychology. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Your yeah. your, your uh, work was on fervor. Is that what you yes. said? What? Tell me. About, I, I'm. What is that? I'm interested. Okay. Well, so I, I wrote uh, my PhD, and I'm currently writing a book about the evolution evolution of the human capacity for fervor. Um. And uh, sudden religious conversion and uh, uh, the emotion of awe and uh, strong experiences. uh, And uh, uh, I can talk about that as as long as you want. Yeah, I'd love to uh, hear about it. Tell me more. um, So I uh, relate it to, uh, well, it's all based on a specific kind of evolutionary thinking that that we might discuss. But... um, I think that uh, the state of fervor is related in an evolutionary sense to the psychological state of limerence or uh, infatuated love, both in the parental and the romantic contexts. Uh, but uh, fervor uh, is also, it's not just an, limited to an attachment to another human being, but you can be attached to a set of ideas, to all sorts of different uh, uh things that that uh uh like like fervor for a political stance or yeah or religious or for even a football team or uh but uh, in general i because i look at things from an evolutionary point of view i look at the most extreme cases right because mm-hmm. if we find just one cat that can speak english then we'll rethink of the evolution of all cats in, in language you know it doesn't need to be statistic you can argue from an anecdote sometimes sure when it comes to so because of that i look at uh, extreme cults as uh, uh cases of people with high levels of fervor as something to uh, uh get insights into it so yes it, the the uh, i talk about fervor in general and of course re- you can be religious with low levels of fervor and you can be an atheist with high levels of fervor uh and fervor also is is morally neutral it's neither inherently good or inherently bad it depends what you have fervor towards but um i think that the uh the the uh so i i look at cults but i it's 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 more general what cults did you look or what what did you find in terms of fervor and cults well <laughs> that it's it's uh, it's very high my favorite cult that i've been studying for for many years is scientology actually all this research started when I was reading for with my advisor books regarding the evolution of uh, religiosity and finding them complete, 
to be completely inconsistent with what I know about cults, such as Scientology. Interesting. And uh, so there, there's all sorts of theories, uh, uh, usually coming from, from cognitive science, like the, uh, the recent ones, cognitive science of religion, uh, where it's the, the, the spread of ideas, it's an epidemiology of representation. It's based on, on certain paradigms that I think are uh, very problematic. And uh, uh, I came to it from a, a different aspect where you need emotional uh, elements and experiences and, you know, uh, all sorts of things that, uh, um, you know, I went back to, to William James. I'm, I'm affected by, a lot by William James. Uh, I like Dorothy Tenov, which, uh, if you know her book, Love and Limerence, that she describes a specific kind of infatuated love that other literature about love and, and attachment usually neglects for some reason. Yeah. So is the idea that we evolved as a species with a capacity for fervor for some reason, and that cults like Scientology know how to tap into that fervor for their own power gain? Is that the idea? Yeah, well, sure. But I, I well, first of all, I don't know if you can say that they know how to do it. They do it, uh, whether they know how to or not. Uh, but, uh, you know, sometimes the, they don't know why it works, so they don't need to have explicit knowledge. But I think it goes more than that. First of all, I think that to, uh, uh, to discuss humans from an evolutionary point of view, you don't need to just think of us as related to animals such as chimpanzees, but also to look at us as domesticated animals. So in a way, there are certain aspects where we are closer to dogs and cats and horses than we are to chimpanzees and wild, other wild animals because domestication does a very specific, uh, well, not very specific, but it lowers aggression by increasing the, um, the different kinds of love that you can experience. And um, so a, a dog can love, uh, you know, almost anybody and they can fall in love and they can be adopted and adopt someone else throughout their lives. While wild animals, they just, uh, you know, they have the, uh, the, the puppy stage, and then once, once they grow, grow out of it, they're, they can't go back to it. They cannot exhibit child psychology the way humans can or dogs can. Wow, that's uh, so interesting. And it, it's so obvious when you say it, actually, and I, I can't believe I've, I've never heard of it before. But yeah, uh, the... the, the uh, we know from domestication of of dogs and other animals, and you know they've done experiments on domesticating foxes yeah. over time. And what they great. find is that um, when you select for the uh, nicer, more um, human friendly uh, uh, offspring, that other uh, biological symptoms or uh, uh, what do you call it, poly morphisms or what do you guys you, you get an increase in the variation of of uh of phenotypes so phenotypes you, right so you yes. get it yeah and so so you know you get a the floppy ears and you get the curly tails and you know i i'm not yeah. an expert but but the idea is is that um as you select for more socially um uh, you know, dogs. So, you know, you, you take a bunch of wolves and then you slowly select the offspring that are more human and friendly. Um, 
you're essentially um, uh, creating a, a sub-branch of the species, right? And the, um, the idea goes is that uh, you're creating, you're, you're, sele- you're not selecting for human friendliness, you're selecting for fervor <laughs> for this, well, uh, for, or for a particular kind of love, you said. I think that's more. Well, an expansion point. of the categories that, that creature, I mean, the, 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 the most famous examples are the fox uh, um, domestication, because we've been doing it just in the 20th century, and we were able to see it happen. But what you're referring to, the increase in phenotypic variability, so there's there are, all the foxes looked the same to start with, but once they changed the selection to selecting for tameness, we saw all sorts of new types of foxes, as you said, with floppy ears, different colorations, curly tail. Um, and this is a general uh, 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 biological uh, enhancement of, a, of evolvability. So why, do, why, does it, why does that happen? That's, uh, so, it doesn't seem to be related. To, be, to well, be tame and have variation doesn't seem to be related in my mind. So the, the argument goes that this is a mechanism that accelerates evolution. So it increases evol- evolvability yeah. or, you know, makes evolution better. And the, when things are good in evolution, you want to stay the same. You want to do what you've been doing. Right. And when you, when the world changes, you want to increase the variation to gamble, maybe things, you know, obviously something have changed. So and the selection pressures have changed. So maybe we need to start searching for new, um, new best kind of way to be. Because now right. what we were doing before is not not working the same. So the selection process of the more tame offspring is a new element in the environment. Yeah, so it just changes the selection. So before that, the selection has been on on you know camouflage, on being able to catch rabbits. Uh, now the selection is for tameness, and it's a general uh, evolution-enhancing uh, mechanism that increases the the variability at the time of change. When it's it's a timely change in in in, uh, in phenotype. So, well, would that be true of any change in the selection process? Like, if you uh, took a bunch of foxes and and started to select for super bushy tails, for example, would that also increase the variation in phenotype? Uh, I think so. Oh, okay. I think that I, that's, and, I, and it's, um, it's a mechanism that it's a mechanism because with, with the, in general, thinking through the concept of evolvability, which is, is con- contradicts uh, the Richard Dawkins thinking of evolution because it has, it's based on lineage selection, which is a sort of group selection, just over a lineage. And you select for lineages that are best at evolving. Right. Now, evolving, you don't want to do it too fast because if you evolve too fast, there might be you know two, three really cold winters and you might lose something that took you a million years to acquire. But you don't want to evolve too slow either. So there is the right amount, the, the right pace of uh, evolution and there's also this timely uh, increase in vari- variation. So when things are bad, you want to gamble, you want to try, right. you want to mutate. So today we know the mutations are not random, not in space, not in time, and not in size. And in time, we know that, that uh, and botanists have known this a lot longer than, than animal biologists, 
that stress increases mutation. So right, we we evolved a mechanism of evolution. You know, we, yes, we evolved uh, me- to, many mechanisms of evolution. Right, we didn't just evolve traits, but some of our traits actually um, uh, modulate. Uh, actual mutation in evolution, you know, and therefore evolution, I suppose. But um, also, also traits, you have to remember that plasticity, which is sort of the opposite of a trait, is also a trait. Right. So you can have selection for plasticity and selection against plasticity. So it's, right. it's not simple. Yeah. Right. Like we, as humans, evolved the plasticity for language, for example. We didn't evolve English. We evolved... Um, the, the ability to be uh, yeah or I mean plasticity in general is there's it's uh you know you can have uh identical twins one works out and one doesn't and they would look different you know we're we're just the 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 way we uh behave affects affects us and as you, uh, of course uh, um, literacy is is uh, and language are are very interesting examples and very different examples. Yeah. Um, so, so, so I just want to go back to this one point, which I find to be so interesting, is that um, when, when for animals, and I guess by extension us animals, when we were selected for um, either by domestication or you know by human domestic domesticating animals or by us domesticating ourselves through agriculture uh, or whatever uh, sort of caused it uh, mm-hmm. that we ended up selecting for uh, versions of us that were more likely to um, have a certain kind of love to 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 um, so an, an increase in the in the palette of love so we can have different kinds of love to different kinds of of people objects we can love you know a, a country we can uh, in America, we have amosexuals, people who love their guns. Uh, there's uh, the the the, but also it's different uh, 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 phases throughout your life. So you can adopt and be adopted throughout your life. You can display child to parent love as an adult. You can, um, and I differentiate between child to parent love, parent to child love, sibling love, uh, adolescent to parent love, which is of course very different. And and so all these loves facilitate civilization and getting along. So well, all of all of those loves, the the ones I mentioned so far, are, uh, occur in all mammals. Uh, there's, then there's romantic love, which is about five percent of mammals and ninety percent of birds. Uh, there's also alloparenting, so there's extended family kind of love and friends of the family that that can all, all love a, a, a child and help rear them. And that's even more rare in mammals. But my argument is that this um, collection of different kinds of love interacted with symbolic language, which gives us truth and falsehood, uh, to result in a new you know, type of love, which I refer to as, as fervor or awe. Awe is the emo- underlying emotion and fervor is the infatuated state uh, that we see in, in humans, and it is made it, it was made possible because we are domesticated, and because of this increase of um, the the types of love, and they can show up in different situations. So even as an adult, you can join a group, see the group leader as a father figure, 
adopt the group psychologically so that your uh, um, your relationship you can uh, uh, have the group be dependent on you the way a child is dependent on a parent and the kind of giving and, and selflessness that we see in cult members is not typical of child to parent love but more typical of parent to child love um, so the and i don't i don't know if this is what you're saying but are you saying that uh similar to um the um taming of wolves into domesticated dogs we as a human species uh, tamed ourselves from a a previous version of ourselves into a version now where uh, we have more kinds of love, including fervor. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Well, once we have the uh, symbolic language, you could have fervor, but it, it's probably that we had the different, that we started acting domesticatedly uh, even before language, or it could have been a, you know, something that happened uh, together. But so in uh, terms of years, what, what, what are you, what's the idea in terms of um, how well, we, we don't we, we don't really know when when lang- language happened, and but the the thing is we need to to um, it, it everything I'm, I'm talking to you depends on on how you think of evolution in general. Uh-huh. So the there is sort of a, the popular notion of you know gene for this gene for that how it helped us in the Pleistocene you know how it helps reproductive success and all that that stuff, but um that's that i think is is misleading and is not you know is not uh um is not fruitful i think we need and, to think of elements too, in the evolutionary and too, sim- too simplistic well and i think it depends depends on wrong assumptions so okay. the for example the assumptions that nature and nurture are separable i think is completely problematic uh if you look at uh uh, of something like literacy, or, or let's even a more simple example. If you look at alcohol cons- consumption, if you ask why do people drink alcohol, then there's genetic aspects, right? Because different people, you know, different populations react to, to alcohol differently. Uh, there's epigenetic aspects. So if your mother drank alcohol when you were a fetus, that affects your reaction to alcohol. It affected by culture, of course. If you're uh, an American frat student, you know, a fraternity member, if you're a Muslim you know, you'll drink or not drink alcohol. And uh, it is affected by the niche, whether there's alcohol around you, you can buy alcohol. And uh, alcohol, of course, affects selection. (laughs) Incredibly so, right? People have sex with different people when they have alcohol, they get into fights, they might get into car crashes. So looking at a trait like alcohol consumption and thinking that you can... um, separate the genetic aspects and the cultural aspects based on a, a kind of a all else being equal thought experiment cannot work because all else would not be equal. Yeah. Uh, that's music because, to my ears. It's exactly the way I see things. And, and it's hard to think that way, right? Because it's so much easier to say, Oh, well I have a gene for alcoholism. That's why I drink a lot. Um, well, rather, rather than, I, for, for me, it's harder to think <laughs> with a gene for alcoholism because it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the, it's based on complexity theory kind of thinking um, that, that uh, we should look at traits as complex systems. And as such, their ingredients are not independent of each other. And because of that, you cannot do the all else being equal yeah. thought and experiment. They, so if you ask what 
would French drinking culture be if they all had the genes of you know, Japanese people that react to, or, or Native Americans that react to alcohol differently? Oh, the answer is that nothing will be the same. If they had the different genes, their culture would have been different. They would have been exposed to, you know, just, you cannot, uh, uh, those are not independent variables. So uh, while the genes and the epigenetic and cultural inputs that go into traits might be separable as inputs, once the trait becomes a trait, they are not, uh, they cannot be undone. Right. So, and the trait in a sense, it, or even not in a sense, in a very concrete way, is connected inherently in the context of the culture. You know, the. Yeah, um, and it is expressed, and it is. And, and so the, the massive modularity that people in the evolutionary psychology think that we have a, a module for this and a module for that, where the, the model for the mind is a Swiss army knife is needs to be completely replaced because if all traits are not are, are a mixture of you know development and and uh and and genes and epigenetic inputs uh then the the metaphor for traits should be the hand or or the for the mind should be the human hand it's sort of a general thing that can do all sorts of different stuff you know we, we can develop a module for piano playing we can have a module for reading and writing, even though those have never been selected for. Certainly not in the savanna, you know, in the Pleistocene. Right. So just a quick uh, political question that might be um, tough to answer, uh, okay. but I'm curious. Is I was just talking last night about this with somebody, and the there's this notion in popular culture uh, that's related to evolutionary psychology that uh, men evolved a certain way, women evolved a, a different way. And although um, in, in a lot of ways it's obvious, you know, men are generally taller. Um, there are different sexual characteristics, but there's a lot of a, attribution of psychological traits to men and women and, and evolution. And there's these ideas that men evolved to be good at math and science and women evolved to be, good um at you know serving people or something you know um what are your thoughts about that so i, I think that most of the the stuff that uh is is, is uh bs i don't know if i can use it more oh, yeah. uh, i think there's, there's problems with a lot of those assumptions I, I do think that when it comes to traits that are normally distributed you know, as, as you said, height or the ability to open jars, uh, then yes, there is a, a difference between males and females. But anything that is uh, distributed as a Pareto distribution, intelligence, you know, reading abilities, all, all, all those things that are um, uh, a mixture of, of nature and nurture and are not based, based uh, on, on size, uh, there is very little... Or, or you need you need to really, really make a very, very good argument to uh, justify gender differences because there are so many cultural differences, and there are many times examples of women who are very good at math. You know, there's Judith Polgar; she was a, a top ten chess player. Uh, uh, there, the, the and and very few examples of the opposite can can challenge. Uh, um, you know, many of those theories, 
but in general, I think that it's all the, all of those kind of thinking is 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 based on this uh, modularity and and this separation of nature and nurture, which I think is is just you know problematic. And I can give you many other examples of the inability to separate nature from nurture. Yeah. Well, the thing that I say, and I don't know, maybe my head's still stuck in modularity somewhat, which I suspect is true, is that I, the, the way that I see, um, the, the thing that I conclude based on our current ability to measure such things, because it's really hard to, to know exactly um, uh, how, we, how our bodies work mech- mechanistically. And of course, that's only part of the picture. You have to think about culture and context and everything. But the, um, it's possible, for example, that the um, biology of, of males in general, you know, say testosterone or some other thing, um, helps to develop certain brain mechanisms that make math slightly easier or or it gives the sort of basic foundation a little bit of a jump start so that um, when boys or young men are developing their proficiency or knowledge about math it gives them just you know a slight edge and um, and therefore quote unquote all things equal in the culture like you the thing that I always think about is like you take which of course we can't do, which is why we will never know probably is you take a thousand infants and you raise them in a bubble and you tell them that girls are better at math than, than boys are, <laughs> you know, you just flip everything around in terms of the culture and you see if there's, you know, a difference, you know, um, you see if the same difference exists in the bubble as, as we do in, in our world, which says that men are, you know, our culture says that men are better at math. Um, and maybe we would find some, some biological, um, thing there, you know, that would, but there's many, many stories that, that, you know, you, you said a a specific hypothesis that could be true, but it could be, for example, that women are very, uh, discouraged from joining um, groups where we, which are predominantly male. Well, males love joining groups, which are predominantly females. So if you look at something like chess, where it's a lot more males, then women would not join that hobby as as likely. And we know that women plays as much chess up until puberty, and then the the, the women quit at uh, at puberty. Uh, but it could be that if this was if you change all the gender roles and and, and chess was a feminine thing, uh, males would much more eagerly join. <laughs> Uh, um, uh, the, the, this kind of hobby to be around female. They're not, they're not intimidated by, by uh, female majority groups. But there's many, many other narratives that could account for Right, right. So I, yeah. I totally, you know, 100% agree with that. And people who listen to this podcast know that, if anything, I'm, I'm biased against biological explanations. But the, 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 the uh, so the full... Th- sort of thesis that I'm getting at is that it's possible that biology plays a role, but until we have better technologies of really fully um, with more resolution, understanding biology and how the brain works and whatnot, um, uh, we'll, we just won't know the weight of, 
of all the different factors. Am I saying this right? Well, in a bit. I don't think it's a problem of resolution. I think that you need the the complexity theory uh, thinking that needs to go into it is is a different kind of of thinking. So I'll give you an example um, uh, from the um, evolution of the capacity to read and write, right? So literacy, we know, is not... uh, what people call a selected for trait. So if you take children who none of their ancestors ever read and write, and you put them in a classroom, they read and write just like everybody else. There's no um, difference. But reading and writing uh, literacy, which is a part of your brain, you can have brain damage that that makes you, uh, takes away that ability. Um, Literacy, you can think of as culture, taking advantage of elements in the evolutionary toolbox and rearrange them in a way that uh, through development when you're young, usually that resemble that, that is an actual part of the brain. So the elements in the evolutionary uh, toolbox would be a certain kind of memory, uh, symbolic language, uh, eye motion uh, ability, a certain motor control about uh, writing or typing. And all those things needed to be to to exist to be able to uh, be taken over by culture, and this is a historical thing. Some people invented literacy, you know, thousands of years of years ago, and the uh, that created a culture where we learn literacy as children, and all of the uh, literacy becomes something that is second nature to us, uh, as Blaise Pascal said. Uh, it's human nature to have second nature. And so you, you, the distinction between first nature and second nature is, is, is problematic. <clears throat> so the question for something like the evolution of the capacity for fervor is what elements in the evolutionary toolbox were used? Which ones played a role? Now, with literacy, you, you would say, if you, the, the question that needs to be asked is what difference makes a difference? And so, first of all, we do know that dyslexia runs in family, but that doesn't really determine whether you can read or not. What determines if you're literate or not is whether someone taught you how to read and write. The illiterate people are not genetic subgroup. They are a cultural or, or, you know, they, they went through a certain kind of history where they didn't learn how to read and write. And <clears throat> so the, um, the, the difference that makes a difference is a cultural difference, but you cannot say that the genes don't play a role in literacy because without genes for eyes, you do not read, you know? Um, it's just a genetic difference doesn't make a difference in whether you're literate or not, but it's still a key crucial uh, uh, input that really, really shapes literacy. It's just that it would seem to people who do this kind of all else being equal thought experiments that, well, since everybody can learn it, then genetic difference don't, doesn't make a difference. But of course, I, you know, the genes are still critically important. So, right. And uh, several genes and several factors and all working at the same exact time, affecting each other and um, reducing the phenomenon to one factor is wrongheaded. Correct? Yeah. So the, if you look at uh, literacy, so literacy is still, you could call it a technology, even though it's a physiological part of the brain. But if we started selected for literacy, 
right? If we started finding the, the people who can read at the youngest ages or people who can read the fastest and we bred them, we know from breeding, uh, uh, you know, uh, history that we will, we will have people who can read faster than any human has ever read at the younger, younger and younger age. Uh, and that is called uh, something called genetic assimilation. And if you look at the evolution of uh, language, for example, it really looks like something that started out like a technology, started out, that started out like literacy, but because we, it was selected for, we became conspicuously good at acquiring it. Um, and uh, because it became genetically assimilated. So in this kind of thinking, culture is a leader in evolution. It is, uh, uh, discovers through the general plasticity that we have new type of phenotypes that you takes a while to acquire at first, but through selection, they can become uh, easier and easier to acquire. Like for example, language if that makes is, sense. Does this have to do with the Flynn effect? Um, I'm not sure <laughs> the, the, I know the Baldwin effect. I think that's related. What, what, uh, what is the Flynn effect? The um, effect that, you know, it's hard to measure IQ and um, over time, but it appears, I think it's the Flynn effect that, as, okay. as yeah. a species, we're getting smarter and smarter. Or our, IQ, the, yeah. our response to the IQ test, as it is, is we're getting higher and higher numbers. Yeah, well, historically, but now they're saying that it's been dropping for the last, I don't know, a decade or so. Or so. But uh, it, it might be related to that. I don't think there is uh, actual breeding uh, or what they call positive assortative mating. But um, in general, what what this... Uh, Positive assortative mating would would say that you know the smart people have sex with smart people, uh, uh, less smart people have sex with less smart people, and so the next generation is going to have a bigger variation uh, in traits that where you have positive assortative mating. But it uh, uh, it would affect IQ in both directions, first of all, and it's unclear if it's if if it's going on this kind of. So, are you saying that? As we developed the technology of literacy, there was a selective pressure for those who could acquire literacy earlier. No, no, no. I don't think there, there has been yet. Right now, literacy is completely uh, unselected for. Oh. It's just the technology. So you're saying that maybe in the future? Yeah, that yeah. If, yeah if, you, uh, if you breed for literacy. But I do think that something like that happened regarding language. I see. So you think that there, at in an earlier time, there was uh, some people took to language uh, much faster than other people did. So, yeah, and, and but let, language... let me give you a more uh, a more simple uh, example. And this is uh, uh, regarding the general uh, way that plasticity in traits uh, can accelerate evolution. So let's start with let's say a thousand Homo erectus, right? Homo Abilis people, and you put them on an island, and on this island, they the 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 food is a lot tougher than it was previously. Now, if you measure all those people, you will find out that they all have very similar jaw strength, right? So they all uh, can chew at about the same strength. But that similarity in jaw strength is plasticity hiding genetic differences or uh, innate differences. So. 
it could be that some people got to that strength with very little, uh, uh, you know, exercise chewing. And for some other people, it took a lot more chewing to be able to get to that strength. And so now on this new island and this new food that is a lot tougher to chew, uh, you, uh, so you, you un- uncover this uh, variation. So it was a hidden variation masked by plasticity. And now the ones that took a lot of exercise to be able to reach that jaw strength will not be able to be as strong as the people who took very little uh, exercise to get to that jaw strength. So suddenly we will see uh, a difference would be exposed in the population. Now, if this difference, this uh, new subgroup would uh, mate with each other, either because the weak-jawed people all starve to death or because of, you know, a a positive assortative kind of uh, a sexual selection thing, you will have in the very next generation, you will have children whose both mother and father really had very, very, uh, uh, were able to acquire very strong jaw strength. And if they have 10 children, half of them will be higher jaw strength than their uh, parents' average and half will be lower, right? There'll be a normal distribution. And so you'll have individuals who never had that strong jaws. And this is in very few generations. And if you're thinking about uh, Richard Dawkins' kind of evolution, they have to start waiting for a, a DNA mutation, you know, to get stronger jaws. But with hidden variations where plasticity hides uh, uh, differences, you can test the population, see they're all the same, but once the selection changes, then uh, uh, differences will be exposed and then selection can ha- act on those differences and lead to an extremely rapid uh, evolution. Fascinating. So what's the idea when it comes to fervor and language? So language gave us a new feeling of knowing. Uh, I don't know if you know the the uh, book by uh, uh, Burton, Robert Burton. He's a, a, a neurologist. Uh, he wrote a book on being certain. Not sure. Uh, it's it's a good book. It's a uh, it's a fun book, and in it he talks about our various feelings of knowing. It's like such as certainty, familiarity, uh, conviction, uh, realness, correctness. And he says that these are uh, sensory states, but they're also reward reward systems. And there's there the subjective feeling that something is objective, right? Okay. So it's the there is a inherent contradiction within the feelings of knowing, but we don't want to say that. So as such, they need to be hidden from us. The feelings of knowing. You don't want people to say that they feel the subjective sense of certainty regarding two plus three equals five. They're just certain that it's true. Right. Right. And, uh, we can, we can see with the, the feelings of knowing, for example, uh, there's the tip of the tongue effect. So these are uh, like optical illusions teach us about vision. There's certain glitches in the feelings of knowing the, you know, uh, uh, deja vu, jamais vu, all those, uh, uh, maladaptive or, or there's the OCD people who can never have certainty that they turned off the stove. Uh, so that's uh, a feeling of not knowing. 
uh, the tip of the tongue. You, have, you know that you know something, but you don't know what it is that you know. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so the feelings of knowing, uh, you know, many animals have many of them, but certain animals with uh, theory of mind, they also have realness as opposed to fakeness, you know, authentic versus inauthentic. And with humans, you also have truth versus lie or truth versus false. So you can feel that a statement is true. It's a certain kind of feeling. And it's a difference between knowing that a story is fiction or knowing that it's based on a true story or that it, you know, it is, uh, uh, it is a true story. So can you give an example of a statement that wouldn't necessarily be verifiable as truth or false, but there's a feeling of truth or falseness? Uh, well, that that Trump is going to lose the election. You know, a lot of people felt that that's what's going to happen. Yeah, the and the just in in general, uh, we we anything that we think uh, regarding the future. This is all you know, kind of speculative of, of predicting the future. It's going to rain tomorrow, or but you can have um, uh, so sometimes you think that the knowledge is is objective. Sometimes you know that it's probabilistic but it's a different kind of feeling of knowing it's a difference in the feeling of knowing whether you're certain that it's going to rain tomorrow whether you're think it's highly likely or but the the feelings of knowing um and and truth is 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 one of them i mean you can have you can feel that everything in the bible is true without knowing what's in the bible it's it's a strange thing the the um what about like the feeling of of knowing that God exists with yeah, sure. any heart. So, so there's a, is that what you're talking about? Like, um, yeah. Some... So w- when, when you, we, once we got this new feeling of knowing, which is truth, my argument, and that came from symbolic language, uh, you, uh, my argument is that a new type of love, uh, came about where you can be committed once you have a, a like a falling in love kind of event, which can happen very quickly in some cases, uh, especially in parent to child love and as well as romantic love, where you can you can fall in love very suddenly. Of course, not always. You can it can be slow as well in both cases, in both parental and romantic case. But you can have a very strong uh, commitment and feeling of knowing. Uh, a very extreme feeling of knowing uh, when it comes to when you have uh, something like a mystical experience. Uh, so it's, it's like falling in love with a knowing. Is that what you're saying? Sort of. Yeah. But in, in, in a way that's falling in love, I think assumes romantic context. I think it's uh, falling ta- in love parentally. Yeah. Attachment. Um, sudden, sudden attachment through a very strong experience. And there are many similarities between the experiment, the experience of, uh, you know, conversion when people convert and when people, uh, for example, fall in love with a baby. Interesting. So that's what Scientology accidentally taps into. So yeah, Scientology induces in people, those kind of uh, uh, strong feelings of knowing. I call those experiences uh, noetic experiences, and that's uh, based on uh, on a term from from William James. Here, I'm, I'll bring up a, a quote from William James that I think, uh, and it, William James talks about this stuff only in the mystical uh, 
aspect in the religious context, but I think that it's, it's more general. And he will tell you, uh, here's the quote. Uh, this is from the Varieties of Religious Experience. Mystical experiences have a noetic quality. Although so similar to states of feeling, myst- mystical states seem to those who experience them to be also states of knowledge. They are illuminations, revelations, full of significance and importance, and as a rule, they carry with them a curious sense of authority for aftertime. So we have this experience that something is is true. This is an, uh, a subjective experience that makes you think that something is objectively true. That's, and, so, tr- that's so trippy to, as you describe that. It's so, uh, it really resonates with me. I guess I'm falling in love with that idea. Uh, and, and I'm trying um, to write objectively about the subjective experiences that make people think that things are objective. And you're, you know, I guess maybe hoping for people to subjectively fall in love with your ideas. So you become... Yeah. Uh, the, you know, the next Scientology cult leader. No, just joking. Um, that's so interesting. It's, you know, the, the love of a child, the love of a... To, to a not, not of a child, to uh, loving of a child. The loving of a child, yeah. Loving of a child, the, the, uh, the love. And, and then we have this sort of um, capacity for different kinds of love. And then we develop this... Um, uh, ability to know things and to analyze things, I suppose, to think about truth versus why. well, to to have symbolic language, right? So yeah. if 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 one monkey wants to tell something to another monkey that there's something scary out there, they must feel the emotion of being scared to be able to express that. But as humans, we can talk about someone suffering and the comfort of our home. We don't need to. Uh, we can be. It's it's emotionally detached communicate there's many many interesting aspects for that symbolic language has over a non-symbolic language right um you know i saw a tiger last month and this is what happened and it scared me you know as opposed to um having having to display scared facial (laughs) yeah uh, and and actually genuinely be scared yeah um, to help people to empathize or to know what's Mm -hmm. happening exactly Um, and you, uh, and as a result of our plasticity for love, we um, developed this love of of ideas and of truth. And when certain well fervor towards them, I think fervor uh, towards the truth, uh, or, or a set of ideas or a belief system or, or things that we we consider to be really real. Right, it feels like truth. It feels, and not just truth; it feels like a great truth. Yeah, okay, a great truth that we have fervor for, yeah. and it could be uh, scientifically unverifiable ideas, or it could it could be. You know, it doesn't necessarily it can be matter. almost. It could be almost anything. <laughs> it yeah, it doesn't matter what it is, right? It, and you don't need to know what it is, also. And we uh, and our feeling state overrides our ability to uh, um, think straight about those ideas, I guess. <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, w- once which, is, you- which is fine under certain circumstances, you know, like if I look at a painting in an art gallery and I have fervor for it, I, or you have awe, you have I have awe, awe. Is the emotion. Yeah. I have awe. There, there's no um, logic behind that. It's just a stupid painting, but but I don't care. I, I'm going to have awe and yes. I dig, I dig it. Um, and it's involuntary. Yeah. 
and uh, or I'll encourage it somehow. You know, I don't. Does it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and politically and sociologically, in all likelihood, it will have no negative consequences. We decide negative consequences or had to find negative consequences on society. Yeah, but the, this awe can function for you, especially if it's strong, as a proof that, uh, you know, this God exists or that certain things exist. Right. So, yeah. so a more problematic to society, as we might define it, is I look at the painting and decide that I want to go on a killing spree because this painting has given me a, a truth that killing a bunch of people in a McDonald's is is somehow a higher <laughs> truth that I have an attachment for. So, it. the the well, sure. I mean, I don't know that the, the you, you it needs to have more context than that. But there, yeah, there is no connection between the experience and what conclusions you draw from the experience. So, for example, when someone sees a miracle, they can, they can come to conclusions that are not related to the miracle. So when uh, the, in the Bible, uh, the Jesus walks on the water, and people uh, see him and come to conclusion that, that they're seeing a ghost. This is actually the first. And then when he makes it to the boat, he tells them, no, it me walking on the water does not prove that ghosts exist. It proves that I am Jesus. And, you know, uh, 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 but someone walking on the water is a proof that Buddhism is correct, that Islam is correct, that Hindu, right? There is no connection between that. But uh, for people who experience it, they might not notice that there is no connection. They might, uh, uh, and, and you can have the same miracle seen by different people and they come to think to conclude very different conclusions from it. And and that has to do with this plasticity for love as well. So, well, it's, it has to do with the, the ability to undergo very strong commitment, establishing experiences uh, when it, at least when it comes to conversion. So if you take the example of, let's say you have uh, uh, three atheists, um, and they all are in a room and then they see a bowl of sugar fall on the floor and in the sugar on the floor, the word truth is spelled out. So one of them becomes uh, convinced that this proves that Christianity is correct. Another one is uh, proved that, that Islam is correct. And the third one might still be skeptic or think that there's, you know, magnets or something, um, that there's manipulation. So he might not be, uh, he or she might not be affected by it. What we uh, this this experience can really change their lives, you know, very very strongly, because they might turn into believing, uh, uh, you know, change their lifestyle. And we see also in in uh, falling in love or you know uh, falling in love with a baby that it allows you to change your life really really fast, really drastically. So when you have a baby, you can really change your life. And many people do, and they have to, of course, because uh, they now have a baby <laughs> that they need to take care of. So uh, we see also that after a strong uh, noetic experience, or in this case, it would be a mystical experience because it's in the religious context, uh, people can really change their life and convert and, I mean, just uh, um, break up previous uh, relationships and uh, etc. And there's many other similarities. Between so are, the, yeah, are you saying right. that it's, um, you know, I don't want to get into reductive words, but 
is that uh, function or that phenomenon of us uh, looking at the um, miracle of the sugar and having um, a feeling and a fervor and then we feeling yeah feeling of knowing you get a a noetic experience and then you can if you convert you can be in the state of fervor but fervor is like infatuated love okay emotion is awe and it's an it's an adopted or a um a secondary effect of the the older function of having love for your offspring is that you're saying or, or romantically, yeah. Interesting. So originally we had a more um, you, sort of a dispersed feeling of love that other mammals and animals have towards their romantic partner and to, to their children. Yeah, and parents and, and siblings, yeah. And then as we developed our uh, language and our symbolic thinking and, and language, we started to have that same love feeling for ideas and for truth. Yeah. Sets of ideas, but it's, it's not just that it can be groups. It it can also be a person. It can be, of course, gods. It can be a, a you know, a, a moral disposition. It can be all sorts of things that are included in the commitment. Interesting. But uh, another thing that, that we need to, to remember is first of all, you can uh, completely ignore things that are central to your beliefs, right? So you can be a Christian and not give all your money to the poor. I know that sounds weird, but it really can be done. Um, and, be, and that's because the, the same experience, when you have a very strong experience, when you're, let's say, you're shaking on the floor of the, the church, that proves that everything in the Bible is true. And it proves that everything your pastor says is true. And it proves that your way of life is, is, is true. And when those things can contra- contradict each other, right? So the Bible can tell you to give your money to the poor. The priest can tell you that we believe in the prosperity gospel. So we need to get as rich as we can. Um, and uh, because the experience validates both of those at the same time and your way of life as well, you can be completely. Uh, uh, um, you can you can go either way, and, and many times you have a blind spot regarding the contradiction. But the blind spot is also very typical of parental and romantic uh, infatuated love as well. Right, that's what I was going to say. Exactly, we all have had the, or I hope, uh, I guess I don't hope, but I suspect we all have the experience of looking back on a past relationship and going, "Why was I in love with that person?" <laughs> You know, I mean, they were not my type. Or there's, why was I? The joke: uh, Why? Why is divorce so expensive? Yeah, because it's worth it. <laughs> so we uh, select right for uh, good reasons for our relationships. Otherwise, we might not ever have a relationship, and we need relationships with spouses and children extended yeah but we, we we don't necessarily need to have infatuated relationships and even in romantic cases usually the infatuation goes away after some time um uh, but but we parents, need that we need that um we need moments of infatuation yeah and and the the emotion of love uh it, it doesn't need to pass it i think there's a threshold that once you pass so for example parents 
of a child and the child gets sick or gets hit by a car, they, they, they get into an infatuated love mode, which where they have intrusive thoughts, where they, you know, they, 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 they just think about the, the, the health of the child. They're really uh, very goal oriented. Uh, but that is the, that is not the normal everyday love of parents to children, except for when the child is uh, extremely young, of course. Interesting. And that is um, directed or um, used by some groups of people who want to use that. Yeah. So I think that, that when, with fervor, you also have a threshold where you can have a low fervor, uh, be a religious person that has low fervor, or you can be, uh, have high fervor. And when you have high levels of fervor, it looks, uh, it shares many traits with infatuated love of uh, either the romantic or the parental. What are those uh, aspects? So uh, uh, intrusive thoughts. It's very goal-oriented. Uh, you, you can neglect other, uh, other, you know, determines your moods and motivations. Um, Euphoria? It, uh, well, euphoria if, or, or, or dread. It can be either positive or negative. Right. So yeah. you can you can become infatuated with your child when he wins a big award or when they get hit by a car. Right. Or um, the, the there's the, the positive uh, or negative. And, and also you can have a very strong awe experience because you had a very fun you know, experience. Uh, 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 but it can also be dread or it can be a you know, death in the family can induce awe. Uh, Interesting. And so, uh, do do yeah. chimpanzees have these feelings? Is the idea? Well, they have they have infatuated love towards they, towards, towards other chimps, uh, other other chimpanzees. Uh, but I don't think that they have uh, uh, awe and fervor and the, this commitment to a set of ideas because they do not have symbolic language. Interesting. So do you have anything specific to say about your studies of Scientology around this, these ideas? Um, well, first of all, Scientology is, is very good at, at inducing those experiences. Um, and there's, there's, I think that there's a, a, an, an important aspect that I, I need to, to touch before I, I get to, to Scientology specifically, um, is that the, what triggers the emotion of awe is very different than what triggers the emotion of parental love or romantic love. But those are very different from each other. So parental love and romantic love are very similar in many ways, but they're triggered by very, very different stimuli. Right? Right. Uh, And so awe, the emotion or fervor, the state, uh, is also triggered by very different uh, set of, of, of mechanisms. So things like vastness can induce awe. Uh, miracles, uh, you know, skill, beauty, virtue, all sorts of different, I can talk about what il- can elicit awe, but um, uh, that is very different. Uh, that's a key difference between, between uh, awe and love or fervor and infatuated love. Right. Uh, so if, if we go back to, to Scientology, I think that one of the things that is neglect that a lot of uh, People who talk about Scientology neglect, uh, unfortunately, uh, for example, the movie Going Clear or um, other sort of popular media is the training routines that uh, Scientologists do. Do you know what those are? I watch the movies, but I forget. 
So the training routines is, uh, for example, when you sit motionless and stare and, and you know, stare at someone else for uh, hours. So if you move, then you get, to, you need to do it motionless for two hours. And if you move, you get flung, you need to start at two hours again. Oh God. So this can take many, many hours and you people hallucinate when they do that. Yeah, I bet. Uh, because of the, the Gansfeld effect. So, uh, they can interpret the hallucinations as, uh, uh in a mystical way, in, in a noetic way as proving that other things that are unrelated is true, right? So if you knew that if you sit motionless and not, uh, and not, not, uh, um, not change your, your sensory input that, that you will hallucinate when that happens, you will think it's cool, you know, it's happening or you can have uh, out of body experience, all sorts of things. But if you're not expecting them, they can, they can, uh, be, interpreted as being miraculous and as such proving things that are not related to the miracle. Right. So the experiences uh, uh, that people have, and there's, there's a number of training routines, but the experiences can be very, very strong and they can be sort of the, the horizon that once they, someone passes it, they become a devoted Scientologist. And, um, because uh, of the awe. Because it, it feels really real, yeah. Because of the, the awe proves to them beyond, you know, and the, it's, it's a very emotionally salient experience. And, and, and is it also because science, the teachers will associate the, uh, the awe and the experience that they're having with a set of ideas? Yeah, so if we go back to our example of the, the three atheists to see the miracle and the sugar, we can ask, what's the difference? Why did one of them become uh, Christian and one of them become Muslim? And I, I would say that the difference is in what I refer to as the uh, default noetic uh, realization or conclusion. So there are people who are atheists, but if they see a sufficiently... Uh, a convincing miracle they'll become catholic you know that is sort of their default because uh, they grew up in a catholic yeah, family or, or culture. yeah and that was uh, or, or the people around them and that's but to change that default conclusion default noetic conclusion um is not very hard so when that person might go to an ashram in india and they're told that they're that the guru of the ashram is god now, they will not believe it because, you know, why, why should they believe it? But right now, that can become established as their default noetic conclusion. So then if they are convinced to meditate for a few hours, and they do, and they have an experience that they did not expect to happen, and they interpret it as being a miracle, in that context, they, will, uh, they might adopt the belief that the guru is God. They're, but they're primed. They're yeah. They're primed to a particular c conclusion. Yeah, in this case, it's it's it looks like priming, uh, but there's also the default without the priming, so that there are people who have that they know what, or they might not even be consciously aware, but they know what uh, what it is they'll convert to if they have a sufficiently uh, strong awe experience. Right. Interesting. So Scientology establishes that uh, as as the um, as the default, you know, we believe that Hubbard, everything, you know, that he's, uh, he's, uh, uh, you know, the source of all this knowledge and research and this and that. 
and you still don't believe it. But when when you have a sufficiently strong noetic experience, you you know you see the really real, and uh, you can undergo a very fast conversion. But, so to to try to get between someone and their love attachment is like trying to separate Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, that's the or a parent and their children. Yeah. Right. Well, it's even better, right? To separate a um, make America great again person with Donald Trump is um, a very yeah, difficult task. Well, one of the things that, that is shared between the states of infatuated love and the state of fervor is the uh, sensitivity to criticism. So when you tell someone that their religion is stupid or that their, their cult is, is evil, it's like you're insulted their baby. You know, they're not going to uh, they're not going to uh, like you too much after that. And they're not going to con- listen to what you have to say anymore. Right. Which of course, when it comes to a child, we would encourage that. We want people to be biased for their children. That's, that's the sign of a good parent. Yeah. You know, the parent who can't believe that their child would do anything wrong, you know, because they love, love, love their child. So that's a, um, a yeah. So the, the, I, I equate, um, psychologically, not equate, but I think that there's many similarities between cult members and parents of evil, horrible, uh, uh, needy children. So if we hear about the parents of, you know, Charles Manson or Hitler or someone that the kid beats up their parents and is a criminal and takes all their money and all their time, and is, uh, the, the parents do not see the flaws, they refuse to... to uh, they commit crimes to help the, the, their child. They, they refuse to, to believe that the child is a criminal. Uh, and that child dies, then they're completely devastated when that child dies. We say, you know, this is parental love. This is something that, that we'll, we'll think less of someone if they didn't love their children in, in such a, a, a selfless way. But when we have a very similar kind of behavior of a cult member where they give all their time and all their money, they refuse to hear criticism. They can't believe that the, the, their cult is criminal, but they, they commit crimes for the cult. And they're absolutely devastated when they're thrown out of the cult or if the cult you know, breaks up. Uh, people think of them as gullible idiots, and I don't think that they should. I think that they should think of them as uh, people who are manipulated the same, in a similar psychological way that a, ch- a person is manipulated by a, a baby. And therefore, counselors should. Are you a therapist? Are you a clinician? No, no. Counselors like me and um, others uh, will often make this mistake and not really help people as they are leaving these organizations because of this misunderstanding of the experience of being in those organizations. Is that correct? Yeah. And I think that many, many people fall into the, the, uh, the habit of arguing with the cult or with the, the person's uh, religion while they should actually argue about the cult. What does that mean? So you need to talk about religion. You don't need, uh, you know, talking about religious people, not talking with, uh, not talking with the religion, not having a dialogue within the, the but to talk about how, you know, what experiences did you have to, to, to have joined the group rather than what uh, um, to, to talk about it, not talk with it, you know, not, not uh, this is the point that your guru makes and they're wrong. 
yeah. these points are wrong, rather than you, uh, yeah, how did, what experience did you have to conclude that the, that, that the guru knew what he was talking about? Oh, interesting. So meta, going back and yeah. having some kind of meta understanding of the path that got the person to the conclusion rather than yeah, and to... and what what they thought about it before, right? So, what did you expect to go in? What, what you know, if they did have a, a fast conversion, there is also a slow conversion. Um, but if it was fast, the the the, the details of that uh, of that experience can can be really uh, important. But in general, just understanding the way that those kind of experiences can manipulate us, I think, is can be very very helpful. And instead of just refuting the idea, like, you know, that guy isn't really God. Yeah, exactly. Because that, that I think is, is uh, many times even counterproductive. Right. Interesting. So, uh, well, and, and I should say, I'm, I I will soon have a book out with all of this. So uh, right now I'm not pushing a book, but uh, uh, if you read this in the future, then I might have my book already out. And yeah, what's the it, current what's uh, working title is the awe-inspired primate. And how do, how do, how do you spell your name? Cause you're uh, Laor, L-A-O-R. L-A-O-R. And the first name Yuval, Y-U-V-A-L. And I guess might as well just conclude this episode. Where can people find you on the internet right now? Uh, so, well, I, I'm, uh, my email is my first name and my last name at gmail.com. So that's Y-U-V-A-L-L-A-O-R at Gmail. And I'm also under my name on Facebook. I have Facebook and Twitter accounts, but I don't really use them. So you can friend me or message me and I will see it eventually, but uh, I'm, I'm not as uh, active on social media. Interesting. So the best way would be to email you. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, do you have any other publications out yet, or is this your first book you're working on? Uh, yeah, this is my first book. I have my dissertation, which was about this kind of stuff, but it's it's uh, not as reader-friendly. And uh, I have some articles, but yeah, this will be my first book. Interesting. And what are you going to do as a career? Are you going to be a writer? Uh, that's the hope. And uh, possibly uh, uh, join academia, but I... I sort of dread having to go into that, uh, you know, publish or perish world. Yeah. Yeah. I benefit as a, a professor in a training program in that we're not um, held to that standard. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're trainers of professionals. So, um, you know, we're pressured to do some academic pursuit, but not at the publisher perish situation, which yeah. I, yeah, boy, that would be a bummer. Um, um, especially because, uh, I, you know, when I do publish, I, I have to really love it, you know? Yeah. And I can't imagine if you're having to publish things frequently that you would be in love with everything that you're working on. Yeah. I, I, I cannot work on anything else. You know, if I, if I'm writing a paper, I, it sort of, I need to, uh, it's, it's very time consuming for me and very, yeah. Yeah. Very time. consuming. Yeah. Well, this was fascinating. I, I find my mind is totally expanded after talking to you. I'm sure the listeners think the same thing. And, um, I'm now suddenly insecure about everything I've ever said about evolution on the podcast. 
<laughs> um, so in the future, maybe we'll have you back on and I'll be very happy to have to uh, help yeah. you with, um, the concepts and, and kind of the language too, cause, uh, it's not my field, you know? Sure. Uh, but thanks for coming on, on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And, uh, everyone out there, thanks for joining us and please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. Thank you.